this is Maggie Millard from Kinexus coming to you today with two blog posts by Mark Jabin about the recent 2016 presidential election and organizational improvement. The first post is called The Election and Organizational Improvement Lessons We Can Learn. Mark says, the pundits, pollsters, and people around the world are confused about the U.S. presidential election, but maybe we shouldn't be. How the brain operates explains a lot. Our brains draw a conclusion to make sense of the world. That story we tell ourselves is based on an interpretation of its observations filtered through the lens of what I call its sorting criteria, the parameters for success and consequences of failure unique to that circumstance. The brain hones in on what matters most of the time. What you look for depends on your brain's sorting criteria, so that what you see is what you look for. This explains why two people might seem the same thing so differently. The brain operates in two contiguous, non-overlapping, yet interactive spheres. One contains processing you're aware of, deliberating, analyzing, and what we think of as decision-making. Here you compile a spreadsheet of pros and cons. If the decision rests upon running the numbers, so to speak, if something costs more or less, or if the number is higher or lower, then the decision can be made here. But decisions that involve a value judgment between worthwhile but competing options occur outside awareness in the hidden brain. Here, the sorting criteria are prioritized and applied to craft the story. Each of us comes with a pre-packaged prioritization of sorting criteria. This represents a person's worldview and ideology, beliefs about how the world works, and the guidelines to navigate it. The hidden brain starts here. It dismisses less impactful criteria and generates a story and decisions based on those that remain. It does not use language to share its choices. Rather, it uses feelings, emotions, and hunches. The working prefrontal cortex then assembles the facts, experiences, and language that rationalize the choice as the best available options. In other words, you have no access to how these value judgments are actually made. You just know. Wouldn't it be great to know exactly why you feel the way you do? But we can't always know. We really have no idea what goes on in the hidden brain. In the recent United States presidential election, it's safe to say that both candidates were seen as flawed by the majority of people. Trying to reconcile these flaws against their worldview and ideology left voters seriously challenged to prioritize criteria and make a choice that felt right. People did not know enough to make a decision that felt good. Brains were pushed beyond their limits trying to deselect among conflicting criteria in order to generate a story that people could live with. How could a person of strong faith and principles reconcile a candidate who so openly violated these precepts? How do you support a candidate who doesn't appear trustworthy? Yet, to make a choice, voters did indeed disregard and overlook some of their own importance like sorting criteria to justify and defend their choice as the best option. For the undecided voters who could not reconcile the conflicting sorting criteria, their hidden brains ultimately landed on the conclusion of ambivalence. They just needed to know more, and the list of pros and cons in the prefrontal cortex did not have that data. For them, the prioritization became clear by what they did. The brain does not work well on hypotheticals, but given a concrete example, it will tell you clearly how you feel. Entering the voting booth took the decision from hypothetical to concrete, forcing their brains to make a choice. And in that moment, the brain prioritized its list and had to value some criteria over others and a vote was cast. Your organization is no different. 
People have an opinion and a story based on their worldview and how they observe the circumstances. Prioritizing what matters so that they can make choices to be successful and avoid failure. They feel good or bad or ambivalent about a proposal. Once put into action, though, how they feel becomes clear. What vote do they cast, adopt or resist, participate and engage, or check out? Glass half full or glass half empty? Sometimes it is impossible to know how someone, even yourself, prioritizes sorting criteria until you have to act. This explains why the concept of continuous improvement is so powerful. Unlike an election, it provides a platform to try without an irretrievable commitment. Find what works and do more of that. Find what doesn't work so well and deselect that. Step-by-step, step, zero in on the best way to achieve what truly matters. Acknowledge that each and every situation differs from prior experience. Your story, your explanation, your rationalization are just the starting point, not the ending point. Start with the ideology, but don't stop there. When ideology and story become immovable, when the resulting choice becomes irretrievable, the brain loses an opportunity to consider all that really matters. This was well demonstrated in the Burns study referenced in a previous post. A person with a strongly held view processes in a different area of the brain compared with someone entertaining other possibilities. Such an individual is not in the frame of mind to engage in the work and spend the energy to find the better option. As each party defends their choice and resists any other, the result is dueling solutions, a dead end, a quagmire, and a sure path to nowhere. There are always options. We just can't always see them. It depends on how the sorting criteria are prioritized. Unless you commit to seeking, acknowledging, and honoring all the sorting criteria in a given situation, unless you give the brain an opportunity to prioritize among them, unless you work with the brain and not against it, how will you ever know how you really feel? Heck, you might even learn something you weren't aware of. You might discover an option that works even better than the choice you seem so sure about. You might actually land on an ideal choice, one that works and is workable, and it may just save you from the apparently irretrievable dueling solutions. So that's the end of Mark Jabin's first post on the election and continuous improvement. This is the beginning of the second one, called The Election and Organizational Improvement, The Lesson We Can Learn, Part 2. Mark says, In a deeply divided race as the 2016 presidential election, the slogan said it all. Make America great again. On this side of the political debate was a group of people who believed that something valuable had been lost and needed to be restored. While this was not their fault, others had taken advantage of them. They were victims of change, scared and voiceless, in survival mode, focused on all that was wrong. The resistance was rooted in adrenaline, the neurotransmitter used by the brain in stressful circumstances. Adrenaline produces the flight or flight response, causing one's heart to race and palms to sweat. It diverts blood flow to muscles to be ready to act. Vision narrows down, attention is focused on the immediate threat. On the other side, we have stronger together. On the other side of American politics was a message of hope touted by people who believed that it was possible to build on what had worked in the past to make things better. When a person feels more hopeful, when they see a path worth pursuing, when they take action in that direction, dopamine is the neurotransmitter of choice. Dopamine makes you feel good and encourages more action. And then there are some people somewhere in the middle. A third group rejected both. The rhetoric from one was too threatening, too divisive, and went too far outside their worldview. 
The other did not demonstrate enough to overcome concerns about character and past events. Neither side looked very trustworthy. Neither candidate looked credible. In the end, those undecided voters did make a choice when they pulled the lever for a third-party candidate or elected not to vote at all. How quickly, though, the nation's brain chemistry changed. As election results rolled in through the night, the first group found that they now had a voice. They would have the power to do what they wanted, to go back in time and make America great again. Only one thing in their lives was different, but in an instant, their neurotransmitter of choice became dopamine. For the second group, the transition was just as abrupt, leaving many people confused and bewildered. While pollsters and pundits had assured them of a raucous victory party, instead they were left suddenly shockingly voiceless. Now they were at the mercy of powers they had no ability to influence, their very survival of their ideals was at stake, and adrenaline became their driving influence. That third group remained just as disenchanted. The Burns study referenced in Mark Javen's previous post demonstrated that when a person has a strong opinion, their amygdala is active, and their brain agrees that this is the voice that counts. They're not in a frame of mind to engage with alternate opposing or different options. The recent conflict at the campaign manager's conference surely demonstrates that. A person who is willing to do so operates in a different area of the brain. On election night, brains in all camps did what brains do. They start with the worldview and ideology. They add in new data, like the election results. They reprioritize their sorting criteria and what matters to generate a new story in which they play a new role. Although the margin between victory and defeat was narrow, the abrupt change reflected in the emotions and feelings that came starkly to awareness was no small pendulum swing. If you think of our country as having a collective brain, on this night the loudest voice in its hidden brain became the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex agreed, this choice is the better path to success. The quest for our divided nation is whether our many challenges are best tackled from resistance rooted in adrenaline or a perspective built upon dopamine. Although the winning party got there with the balance favoring adrenaline, does this remain still is the best choice going forward? Do the winners reach out to opponents, hear their voice, and add that resistance to their own concerns in an effort to establish a shared outcome and craft countermeasures people can get behind? They could seek to learn the sorting criteria that matters to others and create the conditions where people operate on dopamine. On the other hand, they could also use their newfound power to create an atmosphere rooted in adrenaline. What should they do? Does their worldview prevent them from acknowledging alternate and possibly valuable perspectives? Is their ideology the end game or the starting point? Do they have the wisdom to craft ideal change that works and is workable? Or will they too get stuck in dueling solutions? The funny thing is these questions would be the same no matter who had won. So here's the lesson. Substitute your own organization into the story. Is it really any different? Which will help you be successful in your change efforts? People drenched in adrenaline or buoyed by dopamine? Is your ideology the end game or the starting point? Is there any benefit in you reaching across the aisle to those who feel differently about what you want done? People may resist change right now, but we've seen how quickly that can change. It all depends on what you do. To read more posts like this, visit us at blog.kinexus.com. Of course, you could subscribe to this podcast to get our posts on the go. And if you like the show, please, please find us on iTunes and write us a review. It really helps other people find our show so that we can spread continuous improvement.